The following is presented to you in a round sound. It was recorded with whatever was lying around. Insist on respect the sister, walk around like a woman is. She won't speak unless it's something worth saying. Don't play the girl, take herself so seriously. People stare curiously. She's got a natural way, her hips sway furiously. Yeah, the luxurious thing. Carries herself like the cutest, most courteous thing you see this side of the bay. Hey, this is Lady Don't Take No, your weekly roundup of all of the real and none of the fake. I'm your host, Alicia Garza. This show is pro-Black, pro-queer, proudly feminist, and pro-do-what-you-like. Every week, you're going to get the best of what goes on in my head, what we loving on, and what we hating on, what we might be, and what we ain't going to do. Politics, pop culture, the erosion of our democracy and how we know it's happening, we cover it all. We know that no matter where you are, it's a challenging time, a changing time, a time of transformation. It's all the things all the time nowadays, but we are going to help you understand the dynamics of this time all the time. (laughs) So tune in, tell a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We do it for the culture, so the pod is free 99, because we know that with a country in chaos, the least we could do is keep you from putting your money anywhere else than where it's needed. It's all right. It's all right now. This week, we have two amazing guests, and I am so excited to talk about their most recent project. Please join me in welcoming Cole Brown, who is an author, producer, and political commentator. And, 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 and I want to welcome Natalie Johnson, a writer and illustrator who focuses on racial justice and gender equality. Together, Cole and Natalie have compiled and published a collection of letters and illustrations on the subject of Black love called Black Love Letters. This collection has contributions from some of my favorite writers, activists, doers, and thinkers, including Brontez Purnell, Morgan Jerkins, Reverend Al Sharpton, and Dr. Imani Perry, among many, many others. Black Love Letters is a testament to the fact that where there has been pain and suffering, there has also been immeasurable, irrepressible joy and love. And we're going to get all the way into it today. So Cole and Natalie, welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. It's really good to have (laughs) y'all. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited that we're here. So I I really want to start off with a question that I ask all of our guests just to kind of ease us in. But I'm going to switch it up a little bit, if that's all right with y'all. So we're definitely still in a pandemic. And when we started this podcast, we really kind of came into a context, right, where everyone was locked inside. And suddenly we realized how dependent we are on each other to survive. And I'm going to ask each of you to give me an example of a time when you recognized that you were not alone in the world and that actually for you to be, other people needed to be too. Cole, let's start with you. Yeah, so I, you mentioned the pandemic. So uh, a clear example is top of mind for me. I was, uh, I had moved to Australia right before the pandemic started. And when I say right before, I mean like two or three weeks before. And um totally unexpectedly because of the pandemic ended up kind of trapped in Australia for an entire year with both my mother and my sister living in an apartment that was not suited for the three of us. 
Um, <laughs> so it was it was all of the joy and strife and pain in the assness that you can imagine, but also a really special time. You know, brought us closer together in a, in a way that I don't think we would have otherwise. Uh, and and a time that I absolutely don't want to go back to, but really cherish. Ashe, mm. thank you. How about you, Natalie? Um, I think actually, Cole, you're going to hopefully not cringe at this, but I've been thinking about our friendship a little bit. And I think one of these examples was actually when we were working on Grey Boy, your first book together. Cole asked me to do some illustrations for each chapter of his book as kind of a response to what was contained in there. And there was a really personal chapter where he actually like, talked about his mental health and depression. Um, and I was reading it and I was like, I had no idea this is what you were going through. And I ended up making this illustration of this hand coming out of the water as like, I'm looking for connection, I'm looking for help. And so that was a really interesting moment in our friendship. And I think what set the ground for us working together later, but it was also a moment of like, oh, we're actually going through something really similar. So, yeah. Mm. Okay, thank you for taking it all the way to the deep, uh, Natalie. We appreciate you. I was going to say, that was beautiful. <laughs> We've, we haven't had that conversation. Um, thank you. That's true. Oh, this is making my heart so happy. So look, y'all, I want to dive in because I'm really fascinated by the concept of Black love. And especially in a time that feels so incredibly chaotic. I mean, at the time of this recording, a former president, right, has been indicted now four times. This last time with, what was it, 41 felony counts? I mean, it's unprecedented. Everything feels a little bit topsy-turvy, and it does feel like we're all a little bit on edge, right? We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know where it's going to come from. But then there's this beautiful constant, which is love. And Black love, I think, has been a real theme over the last decade, especially with the rebellions and the uprisings, the reckonings, whatever you want to call it. It has definitely been a decade where we're paying a lot more attention, not just to racial strife, right? But the things that people do to connect and survive in spite of. So I want to start off by just hearing a little bit for you all what brought you to this concept of doing a book of Black love letters? Like, where did that come from? So the project actually started three years ago in the summer of 2020, which just felt like the moment where the world was convulsing and a lot of America's problems were put on full blast, particularly the problem of anti-Black violence. And we were also incredibly isolated and looking for connection, that space in between work and family life where we can connect with other people was just gone. And at that point, I was with two other roommates in this three-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn. And I had this idea to ask other Black people I knew who were creative and like to write and like to storytell to write a love letter to someone else in their life or a love letter to themselves and just focus on a time they felt really safe and seen and heard. And then I created a piece of illustration in response to the letter and it just lived online. And Cole was one of the people I asked because we had been working together on Grey Boy and we were friends. 
So it was a small collection of letters. It was about a dozen and it just stayed online. And a couple months later, Cole came to me and said, I think we can turn this into a book. Are you interested? And at first I was kind of nervous, honestly, because it was actually a sort of responsibility Mm -hmm. because obviously Black people are no monolith. And Mm -hmm. if we were going to do this, we had to take great care to do this and build this collection that at least reflects the diversity that is the Black community. Mm -hmm. So we started building it around two and a half years ago at this point. And it's really blossomed in a way that we did not expect, you know, part illustration, part prose. And we're really excited for it. Cole, you want to add anything to that? Only that I, you know, I came to this as a fan first. So as I just mentioned, I was I was <laughs> in Australia and I, you know, I was like maybe the only black person on that continent, one of very few. And Definitely. Uh, watching you know, watching the news, particularly the news in the U.S. And just like, it was difficult for me to just process the images that I was watching and and had no real anchoring in reality, given the fact that I was so far away. And I just thought this was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. I was excited to participate in it, but also just excited to to have this sort of audience and sort of collective grieving um, and collective processing. So so when I came to it and, and came to her and said, can we make a book out of this? It was really just because I think that this is like the coolest thing ever and I want the world to see it. And then I'm excited that two and a half years later, uh, it will. Natalie, thank you for having this idea. Thank you for inviting our community into a conversation with each other and ourselves about our resilience and our power and our beauty, that is not a small feat. And you're absolutely right when you say it resonated with me when you said it's a huge responsibility, right? Once you mm-hmm. once you break that open, there's all kinds of stuff in there. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk to you more, Cole, about Australia because Australia is such an interesting place. Um, I should say there are not a lot of Black Americans there, but there are a ton of people who identify as Black because Mm -hmm. context and all of that stuff. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about diaspora. How does diaspora show up um, in this book? I mean, Natalie, you made an excellent point, which is that we are not a monolith. We are everywhere, (laughs) every shape, every size, every background, every mixture, right? Like we are a global community. So talk to us a little bit about how that shows up in the book. I um, I think that we came to this really intentionally wanting to dispel any notions of a monolith. So if you look at the collection of individuals that we have, it is the entire scale of age, the entire scale of fame or notoriety, the entire scale of professions and creative endeavors, it's impossible to capture all of the many facets and many things that blackness is in a single book, obviously. Um, that said, we tried. <laughs> we tried to get, you know, as cast as broad of a net as we could. And um, in doing so, we also, I think that our approach from the very beginning was a very broad definition of love as well. So this is not mm. a, a collection of romantic letters. There are romantic letters in it, but um, we also want to unearth the ways in which love can be painful, um, that mm. love can feel like loss that love can feel like awe, healthy and unhealthy. So I think that we tried to very intentionally have a very broad approach so that hopefully everybody, Black or otherwise, can come to this and see a part of themselves in the collection. Mm. 
I just got shivers. Natalie, what do you want to add to that? Yeah, there was something that I think we stumbled into in creating this collection that romantic love between two partners is so important and it's this wonderful sustaining force. But there's also something beyond that in that community is so powerful and chosen family is something to celebrate and is so sustaining. Um, Among the letters, we have Denez Smith who really writes about the power of chosen family. And it's, I mean, it's, it's really profound. And there's something that I think Black people uniquely understand. There's this line by the poet Gwendolyn Brooks that goes, we are each other's harvest. We are each other's business. We are each other's magnitude and bond. And I think that's so important. And it, I think that's something that really ties together the Black community, that we know we are of each other. And that is very much present in this book. It's so true. Okay, first of all, I just need to like riff on this for one second. <laughs> Do you ever see those memes on Instagram where, they, where they'll ask you like, what does this gesture mean? Or what does this word mean? And it's like, we all know. We all know. Right. Like when right. the eyebrow raises, you know what that means. I mean, we just talked about the Alabama rebellion last week on the podcast. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? When that hat went up in the air, we all knew exactly <laughs> what was going to happen. We knew what was coming. We were like, okay, this is what it is. There is a deep shared experience and it's not surface level, right? It's about the interplay between our experiences in the world, right? Our cultural sharings and offerings and the way that we shape and are shaped by each other. Um, And then there's something in here, right, about the ways in which both pain and the beauty of this experience, right, definitely shapes what it means to be Black in the diaspora. That's why I think Australia is such an interesting place. Before we move on, can I just quickly jump in on that? Because I I think that you, you talk about the shared experience and something that was striking to me about this project versus anything else I've worked on is that we weren't at any point by the publisher or by each other ever asked to explain any of that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've worked on on other projects that are perhaps more commercial or whatever. I mean, for whatever reason, um, you have to explain what it means when the hat goes up. And yeah. um, this was a space where we could just, we, we just all got it, you know, and between us and the contributors, and we could just play in our own our own sort of sandbox without any of those concerns. So when you read it, you're getting like the most authentic version of one's fears and anxieties and adoration and love and everything else. Um, so that was really special. I love that. We can thank movement for that, right? Absolutely. Created space for us to be like, we good, right? Yep. <laughs> or we gonna be good right. one day. Talk to me about other things that surprised you. So you've been collecting these love letters for like a couple of years, and then you decided, let's like bring it all together. But in the beginning and all through the process, were there things that you didn't expect? Were there things that you saw that shocked you, that changed your mind? So from the beginning of the project, it was, you know, about a dozen letters and I asked another friend of mine named VJ Jenkins to write a letter. He is a lawyer for the Department of Justice and just a really wonderful human, but he loves poetry. Mm. And I asked him, would he be interested in writing a letter? And his letter to this day just shocks me. He decided to write a letter to the first 
man he loved in high school. Oh my God, I love this. Yeah, I know. And it was a beautiful letter and it ended up being something I didn't expect. Um, It was this closeted love. They were never able to share it with the world and he had never shared it with anybody. And by the end of it, he told me that he had never come out publicly as gay in the way that he wanted to. And so by the very end, you have this love letter that is actually to Vijay and it's to himself and his love of being a black man who's gay um, when it started out as something, a letter towards someone else. And he said, I loved what you ignited in me. Mm-hmm. And that that was a moment where I was like, oh shit, <laughs> this project yeah. is important, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was so honored that he chose to share that with me um, and I can be a part of that and create a piece of art based on that to honor that letter. Oh my God, I love So this. that was that was an early one. That's fantastic. Thank you. Cole, what you got? I mean, that's hard to top, uh, so I won't try. But I'll, uh, my version of, of that surprise was that, you know, I had a conversation with Reverend Sharpton, who you mentioned is one of the contributors of the mm-hmm. book. And we had a conversation about his letter, and then he ultimately penned a letter to his grandson. And it was stunning to me because it's this letter where he basically says, he, he writes to his grandson, who at the time, I believe, was four years old. And he says, um, it's a thank you letter because he says to him, essentially, you know, I never expected to see you. Like men in my line of work had short life expectancies. And he talks about how he looked up to the John Lewis's and Jesse Jackson's, all of whom looked up to men that were assassinated. You know, the, the generation above the generation above him all died young. So it was something that I have just never thought about. But, but you know, I was speaking to Reverend Sharpton and he was like, you know, I was looking at my grandson thinking, wow, I'm old. What a miracle. <laughs> and that, you know, you talk That's about, awesome. I mean, Reverend Sharpton is somebody who I think we all know as this powerful voice, but what a humanizing moment that I, you know, would have just never considered. Um, so that, yeah. that was one of the most striking for me. That's amazing. And knowing Rev, I can, I can actually hear him in his voice yep. telling that story. Yep, <laughs> absolutely. We're in a very different moment than 2020. It's a very different moment than 2013. We just celebrated, or I don't know, commemorated is maybe a better word, the 10-year anniversary of the founding of Black Lives Matter. It's nine years last week uh, at the time of this recording from the murder of Mike Brown, which uh, sparked the Ferguson Rebellion, which I would say really catalyzed this movement all over the world. And um, it's a trip looking back a decade. And one, I'm like, how is it a decade? (laughs) How did that happen? But two, I often do a thing where I take stock of where we've been. I take stock of where we are and try to use it to gauge what the future holds. And we are in a moment of contraction, whereas 10 years ago, we were in a moment of incredible expansion. And when I say contraction, it doesn't mean everything's gone away. It doesn't mean everything is for shit. I definitely don't think that. <laughs> when I say contraction, it, I mean, when we talk about movements, freedom fighting, liberation, it's not just like a steady 
crawl to like the promised land, right? It is a push and pull. That's why we call it a struggle, right? It's like tug of war. (laughs) You know, you make some progress and then it gets pulled back and then you make some more progress. You try to get as many people on your team to pull the rope to your side. In this moment of contraction, it can be very hard to remember that feeling of expansiveness and possibility and being seen, not just like visibility, but like being seen by each other, meeting each other, connecting with each other, even through pandemic, right? Even through some of the most terrible times in the last decade, I would say um, this theme has really connected us still. So I'm wondering for you all, having documented this particular moment in time, and thank you for doing that, Mm -hmm. having documented this particular moment in time, if we were to look forward 10 years and ask ourselves, what impact do we want this book to have had in 10 years? What would each of you say? I love that question. And it's such a thoughtful question. So thank you. Yeah, I've been chewing on this. Um, Elizabeth Alexander has this book called The Trayvon Generation. Mm -hmm. And she essentially terms this generation of young people who've grown up over the last 25 years as the Trayvon Generation because we have grown up with the death of Trayvon Martin in 2012 in the rear view and with so many other deaths that followed. And that point informed our worldview and our sense of vulnerability and embodiment and what it means to be Black and alive. And it also informed our sense of righteous outrage. And so I hope that this book can be entering a conversation for members of that generation and for their children and the generation that came before them as well. And informing just part of this larger movement of racial justice. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Thank you. Cole, you had enough time to thank? Barely. <laughs> uh, I, I do think that that's a, you know, Natalie and I have talked about that before, but I just want to underscore the point that you just made. You know, when, when Trayvon was killed, we were in high, I mean, Natalie and I are in our late 20s. So when Trayvon was killed, we were Trayvon's age. When Mike Brown was killed, we were Mike Brown's age. A couple years later, when Jordan Davis was killed, we were Jordan Davis's age. So there is like a really macabre way in which I can track, you know, I went to school in D.C., so I remember the protests that happened after Mike Brown because, you know, we went to the White House. There's like a very macabre way in which I track and mile mark my adolescence and young adulthood by the slain Black people. Mm-hmm. And I do think that this project is very much a product of that mentality that you process and sort of live within whether you realize it or not. With that said, it's also a product of, you know, my grandmother who loves me dearly and has her own kind of love. And it's a product of my mother who loves me dearly and has her own, you know, like, so it's, it's what I mentioned earlier. It's a vast breadth of definitions of love. And you asked about the impact, you know, what I the stuff I want to create captures the humanity of Black folk. And humanity is really messy. I don't think we ever approach this wanting to be Pollyannish about, about sort of our existence. So, so I want this thing, you know, if, we, if anyone does look back 10 years later, I want them to look at this thing and say, you know what, they did a pretty good job at capturing like the messiness. 
Um, you know, the, 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 the black excellence, you know, John Legends is on, is on the cover and that's dope. And then also like, you know, some really strife ridden moments as well um, that are between those covers and presenting them as equals because we are complex beings. We are so messy. Yeah. And I don't mean that like in the, sh- the shady way. I mean, there are some of us that are messy, but <laughs> right. I mean, we are like goo that keeps coming together and coming apart and coming together and coming apart. And then at some point you realize you're like a fully formed human, but you're still messy inside. (laughs) Like it's just a constant process of change. And what I love about, and what really resonates with me about what you just offered here is um, those are the parts that actually help us learn the most. The sanitized versions of turbulent times in our lives don't teach us shit about shit, right? right? But the acknowledgement of the messiness, right? Natalie, the story you shared about the person who, you know, wrote a love letter about the person they fell in love with, like secretly, and then wrote a love letter to themselves, like, hey, I'm good. And I'm so glad you taught me that about myself. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Right? All of these different layers, right, are what is the greatest teacher. I think for generations to come. I am not in my 20s. I'm in my 40s <laughs> and I am so deeply grateful. <laughs> I'm so deeply grateful to y'all. And I'm not going to do that thing that people do like the younger generation. We're not that far. <laughs> <apart>. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm actually so grateful to y'all for taking this up as your own because it's yours. Thank you. And when I talk to the Thank OGs you. above me, you know, like revs and you know, the people who fought before us who were like, oh my God, we thought revolution was around the corner and then we got smashed on and then we felt like we got disappeared and we just prayed and hoped that somebody would find us and we could find each other again because we're not done. So talking with y'all today, really, it's the first time that I deeply understood like in a personal way what the OGs say when they say that. So thank you for that. (laughs) Thank you. That's very sweet. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I got one more question. And of course, this is a question that will be on everybody's mind because this is on John Legend's imprint. Hey. We love John Legend. We love John Legend. Um, I actually do really have like a close, close friend who is obsessed with John Legend and has been for years in a purely platonic way, of course. She's married. He's married. It's a whole thing. Mm -hmm. However, um, one of the things that really struck me was one, I didn't know he had an imprint. So that makes me happy as an avid reader. But two, that deep commitment um, that he has had for a long time towards racial justice criminal system reform, but also like movement building. So of course, you know, I have to ask y'all, did you meet the man? What was it like? Are you homies? Like, what's the deal? Everybody wants to know. People are going to be like, my book is great, but what about John Legend? So can we just talk about it? So I'm incredibly jealous. Cole has met him and I have not met him yet. I'm waiting for my day in the sun, but Cole Cole has met him. So, cool. What what what's what's the path, my friend? What's the path? So when we when I came to Natalie, uh, hoping to do this book, the conversation that happened right after that was a call to 
uh, someone within the Get Lifted organization, a guy named Mike Jackson, who I had known for a long time, and we had worked on some other stuff together. And um, what I will say about John is that, like, he walks the talk. Like, um, part of the reason he didn't know he had an imprint is because he just got an imprint. We're the second book to come out on it. Um, it's with Zando. And what an incredible honor. Yes, That's a big deal. Trailblazing. And not only was he supportive in that way, but he penned a really beautiful letter um, to his wife about uh, some of the both highs and lows of their relationship, which yeah. we're so honored to be able to carry in our collection. And he's just been super supportive. I mean, like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and even pretend like I know the man that well. But what I will say is that he showed up for us. Um, and, you know, we're two people that are like, trying to create something that we thought was really special and to for him to take the time to share his platform um, it's just it's just an incredibly high honor um, so don't have enough positive things to say and I have a, a close close sister who is deeply in love with John Legend maybe not in a platonic <laughs> way so um, <laughs> she'll be thrilled that I mentioned that um, yeah Cole oh my Al- god <laughs> Alicia before we get off though can I ask you a question of course. Oh my God. I never get asked questions on my own podcast, but I love it. Of course you can. <laughs> what would you write a love letter to? Mm. Oh. Um, okay. Could I write two? It's it's your world. It's your podcast. It's Absolutely. my world. I'm living in it. Okay. So um, my first love letter would be to myself. Uh, my listeners know it's been a rough two years, honey. I If you want to talk about change... I have had all the changes in the shortest amount of time and then ended a 20 year relationship, picked up, left my home and like literally my home, like the place I was born and raised, lived my whole life and moved across country, bought a house and like decided at 42, yeah, when else am I going to get to do this? So I just did it. And in the meantime, right? have had a lot of change just personally and um, societally and politically that I've also had to navigate. Um, and so y'all know, you've seen that thing where Snoop Dogg basically got a Hollywood star and he gave a whole speech about how he wanted to thank himself. Absolutely. That's like how I'm feeling these days. Yeah. I'm like, I just want to thank myself for being there for myself and having my back. You know what I mean? Because it's been it's been a thing. So I would write a love letter to myself for real, for real. And my therapist would be very happy about that because it's Mm. been all the things. But the other thing I would do is I would write a new love letter to the movement. So Mm. when we started BLM, we wrote a love letter to the movement and that became all kinds of things. And so much has changed since then. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes I don't love the movement. Mm. Just to keep it a buck. I mean, we talk about the messiness of all of it. Um, Sometimes I don't love the movement and sometimes the movement don't love itself. And I think with time and perspective and heart healing and work, you recognize that even though the messy is painful, I actually wouldn't fucking trade it for the world. Mm-hmm. And I have some things to say about um, what I would tell us is coming because I love us and I think we deserve everything. And I think that we know a lot more than we did 10 years ago. And I would talk a little bit about what I think we may have learned and how I might apply it for the next 10 years because we don't need it because the shit is hitting the fan. Like right now. 
That's beautiful. Yeah. I hope we get to read right. it one day. Maybe, yeah. maybe. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. It's one thing to love someone when you agree with them all the time, you know, when there's no problems in the relationship. But I think mm. the real measure of the word love comes when things are really difficult and there's disagreement, but there is common ground in the end. Okay. Finding what that is. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And woo, my love muscles are worn, but they're strong. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. So my mantra over the last 10 years has been tough skin, soft heart. Because mm. without a soft heart, you really cannot keep believing. And if you don't believe, what the fuck are we doing? Really? Right. What the fuck are we doing? And just like that, it's time for our weekly roundup of all the things Lady Just Ain't Gonna Do This Week. So I know usually during this segment, we do a weekly roundup of all the things Lady Just Ain't Gonna Do and the things that Lady loves. But this week, I want to focus on death, destruction, and devastation in Gaza. Y'all, to keep it 100, I mean, what are even the words that can describe the state of our world right now? Lady has been searching for the words, not because I'm unclear about where I stand on all this death and destruction, but more so because I've just had this feeling that there are some things underneath that I think we need to be paying attention to, and I've been spending time listening and watching and trying to articulate what it is that I'm seeing. First of all, to my Palestinian family, to my Muslim family, I see you. I love you. And even though we should not have to continue to do this, we do, because this is the world that we live in. We actually have to keep saying, I see you, you are worthy of your humanity, and no, I do not see you as a terrorist, and I will continue to reject that at every single level. To my Jewish family, I see you. I am so sorry that you are so scared right now, and I understand why you're so scared. There are still hostages who are in danger. There was over 1,500 people who were killed in these horrific attacks. And we should be able to say full-throatedly that this is not okay. It is awful, and it is beyond words. Now, human compassion should allow us to say both things. We are devastated by the loss of life, the killing, the murder, the terror. And all people should be able to live free of violence. All people, Palestinians, Muslims, Jews, Christians, Black people, trans people— All people should be able to live safe and dignified lives. There is a context to what is happening in Gaza. And while it's more than I can reasonably or skillfully address in this segment, I can share some resources on our socials to help you understand what's going on right now. But look, in sitting and listening and observing and learning, and no, not for the first time, but for years now, what I know is this. Killing More killing, more death, more destruction, more devastation does not, will not, and cannot make us safer. It will not return our loved ones. It will not guarantee that this never happens again. And that is what we want, right? To ensure that this never happens again. But killing more people will not solve this. Killing babies and grandmothers will not solve this. Thousands of innocent people are being punished and killed, and this is not okay. 8,000 people have been murdered by Israel since 1,500 people were murdered by Hamas, and none of that is okay. None of it. Absolutely none of it. I've been watching a lot of the dialogue online, and I have a ton of thoughts about what I'm seeing. And it's so interesting to me 
that our tendencies treat people as if they are sports teams that we root for or root against. In these moments, there are leaders out here who will tell you that you're either with us or against us. We remember that dynamic from 9-11 and the war on terror where Muslims in this country and anybody who resembled Muslims were being rounded up and racially profiled and targeted by our country. I remember the devastation that followed, and that in many ways is still with us today. I am deeply concerned about this. And underneath all this stuff about you're either for Israel or you're for Palestine, all this stuff about you're either this or you're that, I'm really just curious, are we for or against democracy? Last week, there was a complete media blackout in Gaza that was instituted by the Israeli government, ostensibly to keep news from flowing out of Gaza into other parts of the world, particularly the United States. And it's happening in the United States too, y'all. I'm told by homies in the news industry here that they are being watched very, very closely, and they have been given topics and people and places that they are not to discuss if they'd like to keep their jobs. That's a real thing. I'm seeing people who are being forced to resign from their jobs merely for calling attention to the devastation that is happening in Gaza. And it's got me curious about how and why the U.S. government can be out here giving money to these kinds of operations where a nation shuts down the internet and communications, but then again, that would be on brand for the U.S. I'm also thinking a lot about how easy it has become to censor people and how some of us are cheering for that, just like that. I am caring for my loved one right now who has and is going to die of pancreatic cancer. And I'm thinking about my Palestinian loved ones who can't visit their loved ones in hospitals because their hospitals are being bombed. How I've seen photos of bloody shoes from children who are being bombed. I'm thinking about how I've been seeing some of you peddle in anti-Semitic tropes about Jews when you talk about why certain people in Hollywood or certain influencers aren't speaking out. And then you're saying that it's about the money and who controls it. Y'all, anti-Semitism is real, just like anti-Muslim racism is real. How about instead of us doing that weird-ass Jewish people run everything thing that y'all be doing, we do the thing that says, how can we fight back against censorship in what is supposed to be a democracy? What are the systems, for example, that allow for I don't know, media consolidation without regulation in this country? And how do we turn up on that instead of each other? Now, listen, y'all, we have 100 people in our United States Congress right now who have expressed sympathies and allegiances to white nationalist values and priorities. They're attending white nationalist conferences and they're flashing white nationalist gang signs and they're not getting shut down or censored. In fact, our news media plays it over and over and over again because it brings ratings and they peddle in catastrophe instead of journalism that is supposed to give us the information we need to make decisions that are informed. So I'm ringing the alarm here that this is really dangerous territory that we're in. And while what is happening in Gaza is like bringing it to the forefront, right? It was always lurking around the corner, y'all, and now the shit is about to turn a corner into fascism and with a quickness. So let me ask, are we okay with that? And if so, why? How did we get here? And how do we keep from going any further? And speaking of, are we okay with this? Let's be clear. Hate crimes against Muslims have increased dramatically. Anti-Semitism has increased dramatically. And we have to ask ourselves, why? 
how did we get here? We have a moment and a movement in this country that has made us afraid of one another. We have a movement in this country that regularly and repeatedly sows division and peddles in misinformation, otherwise known as bald-faced lies. And this movement, they're not just assholes, they have power, judicial power and legislative power. So when Marjorie Taylor Greene talks about Jewish space lasers, let's stop platforming her because it makes ratings. Those were the same people calling Obama a terrorist back then, relying on racist tropes that stewed division and hatred and distrust. When Donald Trump and the people who pledge their allegiance to him repeatedly, and I mean repeatedly, make horrible, horrific anti-Semitic statements and references, and when they then start covering their tracks by calling all Palestinians terrorists, let's stop acting like they're the exceptions to the rule or some fringe activists. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a congresswoman. Donald Trump is running for president again. They are the rule. That is their party. And it's the same party that now claims to be in solidarity with Jews who are aching terribly right now. They are doing what they always do. Prey on your fear, your anxiety, your anger, and then they tell you that the problem is liberals and trans people and black people and immigrants and now Muslims and Palestinians, not all of whom are Muslims, by the way. We've been here before, y'all, and this is an old playbook. But we can, and actually, for real, we have to decide that we're going to do it different this time. Our lives depend on it. You see, this is how evil works, and much more than evil, this is how power in this country works, and power around the world works right now. It has us pointing our fingers at each other and trying to take each other out rather than the people who benefit from our division. And the reason is, is that they want to keep their power. And they don't take kindly to change. I believe that we can learn how to be different. But it starts with us not falling for the same bait and switch that the powerful always do to provide a smokescreen that hides that what they're doing is on some bullshit. My friends, people are not their governments. Just ask the Palestinian partners. They haven't been able to vote for a new government since 2006. We can say hell no to terrorism, hell no to genocide, hell no to using violence as a tool to stop violence. And in the meantime, we can uphold each other's humanity and dignity and contend for real power. Power that's not corrosive, power that's not corrupt, but power that is interdependent. I believe in us, and I think this is our moment to show history and the future what we're made of. Free the hostages, stop the genocide, end terror against all people, free Palestine. I'm so glad we got to do this. Thank you. My deepest gratitude to y'all for being patient and flexible and for being willing to have this conversation once again, it's one of my favorites and we have a lot of great conversations. So thank you for shooting right up to the top. I want to give you a few seconds to shout out your book, where people can find it, how people can find y'all on the socials. Like I want you to do some preening like a bird, like really <laughs> pop your collar and talk all about how people can get down with what you have offered to the world. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you. Cole, you go ahead first. Um, happy to. So Black Love Letters out in mid-October on Zando. 
everywhere that books can be found. And it is available for pre-order now, depending on when you're listening to it. So please go check it out. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm on Instagram at Cole T.D. Brown. And you can follow along with my other work there. And I'm on Instagram as Natalie Sunday. Sunday because it's my favorite day of the week. Nice. Straight to the point. <laughs> Go buy this book at your local black bookstore. People know Marcus Books, Uncle Bobby's. Uh, what's the one in Brooklyn that we love? Cafe Con Libros. I mean, that's there we one. Go. Mm-hmm. Come on, y'all. Honestly, inflation's a thing. The economy's a thing. So support black business. I'm going to buy some copies, but I want the ones that are signed by y'all. Absolutely. And maybe you could get a signed by John Legend, too, while we have it. <laughs> you yeah. got it. You got it. <laughs> That's it for Lady Don't Take No. But I'll be back with a new conversation and, as usual, some more news you can use. We appreciate you joining us, and let's keep the conversation going. Tell us what's on your mind. Tell us what you like. And tell us what you ain't going to take no more of. We post ways to do something about things you hear on this show all over our socials. So if we got you amped up today, check out the socials to find out how you can take action. On Twitter, we're at Lady Take. On Insta, we're at Lady Don't Take No Pod. We're also on Meta or Facebook or whatever it is now at Lady Don't Take No Podcast by Alicia Garza. And we really appreciate it when you subscribe and write us a review. So let the people know what you've heard here today. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our incredible theme is by Latirix. And this pod is supported by the Black Futures Lab. I'm your host, Alicia Garza. Remember, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And the slide into fascism from democracy is telling people to keep their mouths shut because you don't agree with what they're saying. That's right. I said it because lady don't take no. Lady don't take no shit. don't respect the sister. Walk around like a woman. Yeah. She won't speak less of something worse. Singing, don't play. The girl take herself so serious. People stare curious. She got a natural way. Her hips sway furious. Love y'all. Carries herself like the cutest most.